You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Today's conversation will be with Linda Villarosa. She's a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, where she covers the intersection of race, inequality, and public health. Her new book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, was named one of the New York Times' 10 Best Books of 2022. She's a former executive editor of Essence Magazine, teaches journalism, English, and Black Studies at the City University of New York. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Conversations with Shonda. It's a podcast that we have to really describe and have uh, conversations about issues that we're facing in our communities today and certainly health and the topics you touch on mental health. The stressors that we've been living through are things that have been top of mind for so many. I know I cannot probably count the number of conversations I have been in, particularly with Black women. But before we jump in for the audience, if you could just maybe give an introduction of who you are and talk about this latest book. I'm Linda Villarosa. I'm a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, and I also teach journalism at the City University of New York. My book is called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. And it really looks at sort of what's going on health-wise in the United States. And it the first thing that struck me about, you know, sort of the statistics here was that we spend more on health and health care than any other country in the world. And we're the richest country in the world by far. Yet our money doesn't buy good health. And even as a country, our health outcomes are worse than every other peer country, any, every other country that is rich like us. So we have the shortest life expectancy, the worst COVID outcomes, and the worst statistics around both infant and maternal mortality. And that is important to say that it's not just Black people. Black people are my jam. That's what I care about. But just as a country, we're not that good, even though we spend so much money on health. And then as far as racial health inequality, Black people are live six fewer years than white people in our country. We have more than twice the rate of infant mortality. And if we didn't have that rate, something like four to 5,000 more babies would survive. We also have a three to four times more likely rate of maternal mortality, which is really scary because the you know pregnancy and childbirth should be the best time of your life. People shouldn't be die or almost dying related to pregnancy and childbirth. And that rate as a country is also one of the, you know, the only wealthy country where that number is on the rise. At the beginning of the book, you were talking about this issue. And for many of us, um, and I'll just go to Black community on, on the maternal health, Um, and infant mortality, one could believe that that rate is simply related to poverty or some of the health disparities are simply related to poverty, the lack of maybe understanding where to go. Maybe you didn't grow up in a family where going to the doctor was a regular practice, but the book actually describes it quite differently. Well, I think there's a misconception that all racial health disparities are related to poverty or lack of access to healthcare. And I think as far as lack of access to healthcare, even if everyone had universal healthcare, which should happen in this country, 
And certainly we would be better. We would be at least approaching the other industrialized countries. But even if we had that, it still wouldn't erase racial health disparities. And when you look at maternal mortality, you see that a Black woman with a advanced degree, so that means a master's degree, a PhD, an MD or a JD, is more likely to die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth than a white woman with an eighth grade education. And certainly that doesn't make sense because education, especially at advanced degree, is a proxy for knowing what to do during your pregnancy, um, having access to healthcare, having access to a good doctor and a good healthcare facility and to healthy food and clean air and water. So it doesn't make sense that the disparity is greater at the more educated end. So it, when the only difference is race. So I think that's what really struck me in looking at these issues to say, wait, a lot of what we think about some of them is wrong, especially maternal mortality, where the rate is growing. Does that stay true across other areas of health disparities? In life expectancy, it does. And I think it hasn't even been looked at in some areas because it's interesting. A lot of the statistics and not everything, but a lot of the statistics, you know, the studies aren't done that great. And they use people, black folks who are, you know, less wealthy and they compare them to white people who have access. And but in maternal mortality, that isn't the case. And in life expectancy, there are some studies where that isn't the case. And certainly in discrimination in the healthcare system itself, there's a um, research paper from 20 years ago called Unequal Treatment, and it's considered the gold standard. And what they did was matched access to healthcare with you know black and white people in the study had equal access to healthcare, yet it was very clear that black people and sometimes other people of color got much worse healthcare and much worse treatment within the healthcare system. It's the 20th anniversary of the publication of that document this year, and there's gonna be a look back at it. So I'm really excited to see, I'm alarmed that I doubt much has changed in the 20 years, but I'm also interested to see if anything has changed. As I was listening through that part of the book on Audible, I was reminded, I think I've shared this story once before on the podcast, but. I went in for an annual mammogram and I had thought I had felt a lump and I wanted to get a screening done and they wouldn't give it to me because of my age. And so they start going through all of the um, data and saying that I was too young and it was very unlikely and I didn't have family history and it was this whole thing. So when, I, when they finished, I said, you know that those statistics are not true for black women, correct? And the practitioner said, yeah, I know the new brochures come out next week. We don't have them yet. Right. And I, and so, you know, and I would just remember thinking, why, why did you tell me all like, so let, let's talk about me. Let's talk about my health. Let's talk about why I'm here, put everything you just set aside. And then today I'm going to get a screening, <laughs> right? Like I'm not leaving without the screening. But how easily, probably a few years before, I probably would have left. What happened I, with that screening? There was something that was abnormal. And then I went through some advanced ultrasounds. It, you know, it was pretty scary for a couple of weeks. And coincidentally, I came out of the office and ran into one of my cousins who had advanced fourth uh, stage four breast cancer. 
And so I was telling her my experience and she said, Chanda, you must insist on staying. That happened to me. Had I insisted, I probably would have had stage four cancer to be treated. I would have caught it early. Well, I'm really glad you insisted and uh, got the treatment that you needed and the care. And I think, you know, with black women and breast cancer, we're more likely to have it younger and a more advanced, like a, a inflammatory breast cancer, which spreads quickly and is more aggressive. But I think exactly what you said, medicine should be personalized. It shouldn't be related to our demographics. I point out demographics not to suggest what kind of care people should get, but to suggest, wait, this is going on. Something has been missing for many of us in this country. If you walk in in your black body saying that something's wrong and you're afraid and that, you know, these tests have shown this thing, then obviously you should be listened to. And so that is what bothers me is the fact that you knew you had done research, you understood, and then you weren't listened to. And that happens so often to especially black women in this country, including Serena Williams. That's what happened to her when she was in 2017, when she got pregnant was delivering her baby. She had her baby, but then she knew something was wrong. She ended up having a pulmonary embolism and she knew what was going on. She wasn't listened to. She had had a C-section and the C-section stitches burst because of and breathe. And she ended up, instead of having a wonderful experience, which her wealth and her knowledge about her own body should have provided, she ended up being on bed rest for weeks and weeks and it nearly turning into a tragedy for her. So that kind of thing not being listened to is you know, what I write about and what makes me angry. I went in and I was very afraid of what was being presented in my body. And then there's other folks that are afraid to go to the doctor And I think that they are afraid of the outcome and you share some of those stories too. Can you share perhaps either advice for folks on how to either overcome that fear or explain maybe where that fear is coming from that might uh, support people in in how they're thinking through their own health? I think what's interesting is when we talk about like, I mean, sometimes it's called healthcare hesitancy. It's like a (laughs) fear of going into the system. And, um, you know, I was talking about it with some other academic types and they were like, well, because of the Tuskegee experiment, I was like, this isn't about the Tuskegee experiment. That was terrible, but that happened, you know, the last century. This is about what happened to you previously, what happened to your family members, which you know about. There is a justified fear of our healthcare system if you're walking in as an oppressed or marginalized person, especially in black skin. There are not enough providers that look like us. There is a clear evidence-based history of us being treated differently and discriminated against. So it makes sense. What I suggest for people is go in with someone else. Go in, don't go by yourself. Um, Especially if it's something like what you were dealing with, possible breast cancer. It's something that is scary and it matters. Listening matters. I go in a lot with my other family members and I think it, you walk a fine line. Like a lot of us have shared stories. It's like always get dressed up. So people look at you with respect, come in knowledgeable about whatever you're talking about so that you um, can have a conversation one-on-one and you're not talked down to. And I certainly have had a lot of those conversations and seen, you know, a lot of people who, you know, my loved ones who go into the hospital system and you see not treated well, including my own father and my father-in-law. And so, you know, I get it. 
I get the fear, but avoiding the healthcare system itself isn't good. My advice really is to, you know, keep away from the healthcare system as long as you can by taking great care of yourself and paying attention to your health. So you're having less contact with the healthcare system, but when you need to go, you have to go, but you also have to say to yourself, I have to figure out how to get the treatment and care I need, even if it means bringing in someone with me to help me hear and to help help me speak and to state my needs. Uh, you mentioned your father and in the book, you talk about your mother telling you to get to the hospital and, and dress up. That also reminded me of not just issues in health, but things that my mother used to say to me um, in terms of, you know, be presentable so people will respect you in the way that we often have to arm ourselves to, to be seen as credible or to be taken seriously as we navigate. My assumption is that that is not true in broader communities. Do you think that there's going to be a day where that will not be the case? I'm a half glass, very full person. So my instinct is to say yes, but um, I do worry about this system. If most of the people who are the healthcare providers don't look like us, and there's, you know, there, it's very hard to get through medical school. It's very hard to get through if you don't have family who were also physicians, or you don't have, you know, a school system that encourage you you to do that. And then, you know, what's interesting is when I, I interview a lot of physicians, and a hundred percent of the time when I interview a black physician woman, especially, you know, she t- tells me a story of how she's you know, worked with the patient, she's wearing a white coat, and then they'll turn to her and say, when is the doctor going to come in? So I think that there's two ways to think of it. One is to work with the healthcare system that we have now. And it's to say, what are the things I need to do to get good treatment and care? And then the second part is to say, the healthcare system in this country is broken, and we have to abolish it and start from scratch and really, you know, try to make it better. So I think it's hard at this stage to imagine that the healthcare system is going to change. One that's based on capitalism and it's based on money making and it's based on having, you know, just doing an appointment as quickly and as efficiently as possible, and that means doing less listening um, because you just don't have time. And I have great empathy for healthcare providers, but still they're working within a system that doesn't work very well for many of us. For the social determinants of health and some of the environmental factors, I was thinking about a lot of the activism that's happened even in Minnesota around an incinerator that was placed right outside of North Minneapolis, which is seen as the black neighborhood or other um, toxins that maybe are elevated over what the compliance levels um, ought to be where community actually has to activate to get it within compliance where you see elevated um, illnesses and impacts on our young people. Um, And then you talked about the life difference. Um, When I was working to open up a grocery store on the north side, statistically, we found out that you could go in any direction, I think two miles in any direction and the life expectancy was seven years difference. You know, thinking about the social determinants, and as I understand it, about 90% of what we can do happens in community. What else can you share that would be important for us to understand about what we should be doing in community as it relates to our health outcomes? 
Well, I think I'm fortunately the phrase social determinants of health is just jargon and it's a poor way to describe really something that is very important. It's like, what is the environment that you work in, that you live in, that you go to school in, that you sleep in, that you go to church in, um, that you have recreation in. And if that environment, like you said, um, you know, many of the black communities in this country have been redlined, which means that in the past, um, people weren't able to get mortgages because they were rated as hazardous. Um, but then, you know, who came in was polluting industries because, you know, they <laughs> don't care about that um, and are doing that kind of thing. But it was to people in communities that were the least able to push back against this kind of pollution. And I think what what's very interesting is sometimes, like you were saying, most of the the ways the you know what affects our health has to do with the environment. It's less about healthcare itself, and um, but health. But there is that there are you know in communities that were uh, traditionally redlined or you know black communities and communities of color, you often have poor healthcare resources. When I'm giving talks, I'm sometimes to medical colleges and things like that. And they're like, what can we do? And I said, well, you have to do something outside of just your clinic or your hospital or whatever, because one, if people are hesitant to go there, then you're not really helping them. If they're not being treated once they get there, you're not really helping them. So what can you do in the community to make it more healthful? I love some of the things you were talking about to say, what, you know, what, if there's no grocery store, is there a, some kind of market that you could set up? Is there another way outside of the mainstream system to get healthy food to the community? Cause that's one of the problems in, you know, a community that has poor so-called social determinants of health. It's hard to access food, healthy, mm -hmm. affordable food. What I don't like is when you go into these communities and you look at the statistics and then you sort of say, oh, it's the people's fault. When if you look at the history, it's not our fault and it may be the fault of the polluting, you know, uh, company, or it may be the fault of the supermarket that refuses to come to the so-called hood. So, um, you know, what I think is I love when communities get together and there is there are alternate ways. I don't think this is the solution. The solution is investing in places in an institutional and structural way. But in the meantime, I like community you know, organizations that try to, you know, make lives better for people. Yeah, we're seeing more of that too with community gardens, creating green space and placemaking and ways for people to connect because isolation seems to also be a real challenge that was there and predated, of course, 2020. But then following the pandemic where folks were in their homes, it feels like the issues related to stress and mental health seem to be more present. We're also talking about them more as we also came out of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. I think it's been particularly hard for younger people. You know, if you think about it, school is often a safe place for young for young people of color. It's a place where you can have um, community. It's a place where you have structure, you have learning, and often you have food and, and recreation and exercise. So when that got taken away, you saw the mental health of people, especially young people of color, really drop. You also saw, um, you know, we're more likely as a demographic to to have a child who lost a caregiver give, um, mm -hmm. because of COVID, and because Black people and other people of color had 
worse health outcomes during COVID and more deaths, it made sense that, you know, a lot of people died and left behind children. So I think that that is a group I'm paying attention to. And, you know, I am worried about their mental health. There's also fewer mental health facilities um, and practitioners that look like us or, and whoever they look like, it's definitely fewer in schools. Like the social work, school social worker, school counselor is often absent or just there's like one for a whole bunch of kids in the, you know, in the more marginalized schools. And I think that's something that we really have to pay attention to because, you know, young people are the future and we don't want them to grow up being, you know, not feeling good emotionally. My youngest is a senior this year, and I was trying to calculate in my head, you know, how much of his school experience since eighth grade has been what would consider to be a normal high school experience. So maybe a, a year and a half or so of that time. And I could see uh, sort of the impact of that on his classmates. And it does feel like we've skipped past sort of the impact of what that means uh, for them. The budgets of schools are also being very squeezed. I mean, I guess I'm asking this question more as a, as a mom, trying to think through what might be the long-term effects, because I'm also very worried of, you know, what that could look like, even how to talk about that grief or, or, or loss that they might have experienced. I think the point is to talk about that grief and loss. Yeah and um, to not hold it in. I was looking at statistics around teachers and um, black women teachers are the most likely to be quitting now. And I think it's because, you know, a teacher has dual stress. She has her own stress. She has the stress of her own children. And then she has the stress of the children that she's teaching and often caring for. But I think it's really important to, you know, I love what you said, and it's very true that we've skipped over this part. It's like, oh no, we're, this is the new normal. Well, the new normal comes in in a way where people aren't feeling great at all levels. And we have to pay attention to this. And I think in this country, we pay short shrift to mental health um, because there's national um, sort of character that says, oh, if you just work hard and, you know, you're a rugged individual and you, you know, take good care of yourself, you'll be fine. And that isn't always true. And we do need support and we do need each other and we do need services to address um, mental health at all levels. I was just talking about that with a group of girlfriends and some of the languaging that we often hear, you know, when people say you need, you know, I'm, I'm girl, I'm tired. I can't, I can't go. And someone will say, well, you can rest when you're dead or, you know, you got to keep grinding or, you know, why are you in bed so early? Like the things that we say that actually discourage the rest that one might need when you're feeling tired or you need to replenish. And so there seems to be some, some unlearning that we need around some of the pressures that we have um, placed upon ourselves to perform and be available. In chapter six of the book, Strong, Loud, and Angry, The Invisibility of Black Emotional Pain, I listened to that chapter twice because so much was resonant for me, but also because often when we think of mental health issues, I think that there are images that come forward that may not be how you see yourself. That's right. I went kind of hard in that chapter and used big examples. The two the, the two examples were a woman I who actually went to my college, grew up in the same place I grew up in Denver, and um, she had been struggling with um, emotional health issues 
you know, since she was a child, but it was overlooked, including a really obvious eating disorder, because under the assumption that Black women don't have eating disorders, and she went very yo-yo with her weight, but no one was really paying attention to her. She struggled all through high school, even in college in predominantly white spaces. She ended up being successful as a Hollywood stylist, but what she felt was she had such a like a loose grasp on success because of she was one of the only um, black people doing that, that she was really stressed out. It was exacerbating her earlier struggles with mental health and she was drinking too much. Finally, she was at a turning point where she was going to kill herself. And um, she managed to call a suicide hotline. She had a, a belt around her neck. And then she got help from her parents once she admitted that she wasn't just a strong Black woman who could handle everything and be successful in this white space. And that's when she got the help. And that's when she started speaking out about it. The male person in the chapter is someone who was struggling with mental illness early on too. And his family really tried to get support, but there weren't many resources. It was hard to, to sort of, you know, the family was putting a lot of money to try to help him. Eventually he had a run-in with the police and got murdered by the police who covered it up. And this is someone I, you know, this is a family, my family is connected to their family. And I was really struck by that. Wow. How that that could happen to this family where, you know, his dream was to start a restaurant in Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, and then he never, and he had, he had a child. He had written a letter to the child to try to get the child the letter, but he died first. And I found that so tragic, but it was because he had untreated mental illness or not adequately treated um, and also, you know, was using drugs. And when we are in pain, we're often not treated with kindness and treatment. We're treated with incarceration or policing. And with the lack of inpatient facilities, there are more people that are in public spaces. You share this also in the book. We're seeing this being very centered in the police reform movement, right? The activities that are around that. But our, our neighbors that are struggling with mental health, and they are showing up in public spaces and we sort of step around them and we see them, but they're really invisible. Um, they are being policed. Oftentimes um, we're calling and there's nowhere for the police to take them. They're sending them to emergency rooms where they're, you know, maybe placed on hold and then put back in community without adequate support. Um, is, do you, is it making us more empathetic, do you think, or... Or are we just ignoring it more because it becomes so publicly, I guess, stereotyped in many ways that maybe we don't want to be seen in those ways? I think the stereotype is that um, people who are mentally ill and in public spaces are violent and dangerous when actually they are more likely to be the subject, the victims of violence, including by the police. And I think it's a hard issue. It's a structural issue. Um, and I think a lot of what I talk about in my book is taking away the individual, like taking away the almost the individualism of this and saying, what is the structural issue that we um, that needs to be solved by the government or by, you know, the authorities and by mm -hmm. our structures and institutions rather than to look at individuals and say they're they're violent, they're dangerous. And then to have that mixed in with stereotypes of black people makes it so that it makes the problems hard to solve. And it makes people, I mean, as we saw with Tyree Nichols, even other black people unsympathetic who are 
also, you know, affected by the stereotypes that have been baked into the institutions and structures of our country since the 1600s. And I appreciate hearing that. And I think this is also true, actually, for our young people, where there doesn't seem to be adequate structural support for those that are struggling. And you mentioned um, the first story of the young woman who would have been uh, struggling through her childhood into adulthood. If there are people that are listening that have folks in their lives that, um, particularly young folks that are struggling, do you have any sites or resources that you could cite that might, that they should go to? You know, what's interesting. It's like in this book, I tried not to do that. So my first book, um, Body and Soul is a resource guide and it's a self-help book. I mean, it's not exactly new, but um, you know, it had resources, resources, resources. And in this book, what I tried to do was say, you know, it's, I tried to make it have a dual purpose. One is to get the eye of medical schools and um, sort of medical administrators to get the eye of public policy people to say, these are structural issues that need structural and institutional solutions. And what my daughter, who's very smart, said to me, mommy, the other thing that your book does is it lifts up the stories of individuals so that we don't think it's our fault. We're not blamed. So it's sort of less of a resource guide and more of a please pay attention to this issue because if you don't, (laughs) things are going to be worse and you're not paying attention to people's suffering and pain with even within the healthcare institution that should be caring and treating us. The other statement I've been hearing, the thing that you lifted was this term called weathering and the impact on the body. And I have heard that language before. Can you share more about what weathering is? Yes. And I um, learned about weathering maybe in 2017 or 2018, when I was working on my piece about um, maternal and infant mortality. And once I heard it, I was very intrigued, but the, the researcher, Dr. Arlene Geronimus had not gotten a lot of attention for this because people just didn't believe that it was a thing, despite she's done like spent her most of her life since she was an undergraduate at Princeton trying to, you know, sort of prove this theory. So the theory goes like this, that if you're a person, any oppressed or marginalized person who has to um, fight against the systems, then you know it creates a kind of premature aging. And it works like this. Let's say that you are subject to either a microaggression in the day-to-day or worse, a macroaggression by the police in how discrimination in housing or at your job. Every time that happens, your body goes into fight or flight. So that means your heart rate speeds up, your pulse quickens, and then your body is flooded with so-called stress hormones, cortisol and other stress hormones, which in the not, you know, like once in a while, that's amazing because it, it helps you run. It makes your body tense. It helps you escape danger. But if it happens over and over again, and it happens over and over again to black people in this country, sometimes other people of color and people who are fighting to just survive, it throws your body into, you know, flooded with kind of a toxic stress that over time creates a premature aging. And um, Dr. Geronimus, and it's, she used the term weathering because it's sort of like how a storm weathers a house. It breaks, might crack or break the windows. It knocks the shingles off, it chips the paint. But it also speaks to resilience and love and community because we do weather this storm here in this country. And um, Dr. Geronimus is now has a book coming out next month called Weathering because 
once COVID mm. happened and you saw these um, worse health outcomes of black people at younger ages. So as a demographic, let's say that for white folks, the, the, the worst health outcomes for COVID were between age 70 and 80. For us, it was 10 and sometimes 20 years earlier as a group. So then it sort of made sense that if we if our bodies were prematurely aged because of fighting against just trying to survive in America, it made sense that our COVID outcomes were worse. So now people are really paying attention to this idea of weathering and to her theories. Mm. I'm really happy for her book. So please, you know, look out for it. It's called Weathering and it comes out in, in March. Do people know that they're being weathered? I don't know if that's the right language as they're going through it, or is it something that you believe you just have to live through? Like, I mean, I know that there's tact, right? Like there's a structural element to it, but there's a piece, even I think some of the, the languaging in the book is that, you know, you sort of got to like deal with what is America in the, in these bodies. Right. But I like the dual, the dual. So it's like, yes, mm -hmm. you're being weathered, but yes, we can weather this storm. Yeah. And I think what she points to is kinship. And she points to one of the things that's very interesting for her is she talks about people living in communities of color that are protective as opposed to people who are the only in the uh, in the predominantly white institutions and communities it's harder for those folks and she says you know you have to find ways to get support and to get love and to get community so that you're not just weathering the storm by yourself and that's what i like about that is to say and i i thought of the student i had trey a few years ago he was from the South Bronx and he come to City College to college and you know it took everything he had to get to college. So we were in a black studies class and he says um, the assignment is to think of a time when you um, experience racism or discrimination. So he's the only one in the class said, ah, no, 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 that never happened to me. That never, I don't have that. So I'm like, oh, I'm sure this guy said it. He's a young black guy living in the South Bronx, certainly. And then he just keeps insisting that nothing's ever happened. Finally, we drag it out of him. He said, okay, there this one time in high school. I mean, he's only 19 now, so high school's recent. He said, I was, he and his friend were going to get pizza with these two young women that they were trying to impress. So they're walking down the street to the pizza place, the four of them. And then a police car comes up, has guns out, throws the guys against the police car face down, handcuffs them. The women are screaming and they're taking videos of it. Then time passes. And then it turns out that it was a mistaken identity and they let them go. So then I said, why didn't you say that right away? And he said, oh, I didn't think that was discrimination or racism. That's just my life. That's how, that's just the everyday. And I just thought, what did that guy's body go through? And the two, all four of them, when that happened, of course, their pulse rate went up, their, you know, heart rate goes up, their, you know, blood pressure, the stress hormones flooding their bodies. And I'm thinking, if that is their every day, that's unhealthy. And it bothered, you know, it's like, ah, that's yeah. what weathering really means. But then I thought, you know, it was very cute. I taught him something. We had a really good session. I think we watched 13th. We watched the Ava DuVernay movie. He was so excited that he called his mother. And right after class, I saw him in the hall talking to his mother. And he put mama on the phone. This is my professor. And I just thought that that mother probably got him to college and is protecting him. And he relies on her. And that is the kind of love that helps us survive in this country. The images and videos of police encounters and, and Black death have taken its toll on, on America, on, on us in Minnesota. We've had 
a number of them. You know, George Floyd certainly um, took the took the globe to really pressure the type of changes that we're seeing uh, today. You know, I think we are doing structural changes, but I don't know if you have any comment about what those images, because there's an advantage of having those images or those videos be seen, uh, you know, unfortunately to pressure the system to change, but also the impact of that. I, I wonder if that also feeds into this idea that this is everyday expectation versus something that really ought to be stopped in the minds, particularly of our young folks. I think that there should not have been a so-called racial awakening that to everyday racism and George Floyd had to be murdered for this country to have this kind of, you know, eye opening, which, you know, most of us who are, you know, live here know, you know, it's like the whole, the rest of us, the rest of them discovered racism. So, but it shouldn't happen on the back, on the body and on the um, life of someone. I have noticed that in my feeds, in my social media feeds, and certainly among my children, you know, everyone's saying, I'm not watching that anymore. I'm not watching mm -hmm. that theater of death, but I am, you know, I'm grateful that we have body cams on cops. I'm grateful that people do take videos. I'm glad that, you know, some of the surveillance that seems really alarming um, in communities actually works out this time. But I think that people should care for themselves. You don't have to watch that if you don't want to. We know that that happens. And that does take a toll seeing that. And it's scary. I think the flip side is it's forced conversations among parents to taking care of children and teaching them how to care for themselves, which is unfortunate in this country. I was just um, a mother came to me and said, do you think I should have the talk with my son? And I was like, how old is he? And she said, oh my God, he's only 10. I don't, I was, yes, <laughs> if he's yeah. 10, because often black children um, are perceived as older. And um, that's why sometimes that's one reason where, where Black girls especially get punished. Um, black boys get more punished because they're perceived as being older, even when they're like 10. So I'd say, oh yeah, have the conversation in a, you know, age appropriate and gentle. You don't have to be totally scary, but there should be some kind of self-help that you do within your family um, to say, this is the reality of our lives here. And this is how you have to think about it. You shared with us why you wrote the book and who you were hoping to influence through the writing in your hopes for the outcome and how this might influence. What would you hope would happen? What would you hope change? Well, I think this is the one time when I'm glad that I wrote really slowly. I was kind of low-key procrastinating. I was getting a lot of rest at the beginning because I was so tired. And so it ended up that the book was actually a year and a half late. But it came out at exactly the right time. It came out so I could have the last chapter be about COVID. It came out in at, at a time when at the beginning, when I was early in the writing, no one was saying racism is a public health threat. That was just not something that was said. By the time I had gotten into the book, every a lot of institutions and organizations were, were saying that and saying because of the murder of George Floyd, because of COVID and the racial health disparities that were you know, unearthed because of that. And um, so I am feeling like my book came out at a time where people's minds are more open to change. 
at the medical student level, at the medical school level, medical training and treatment. I've given a lot of grand rounds at hospitals. I was never being invited to speak at a hospital. I'm not a physician. And um, I've done a, a whole bunch of them where doctors wanted me to come in and wanted to hear, you know, what's going on and wanted to know, I mean, it, yesterday, a major hospital in California, one of the best in the world, I did a grand rounds for them where they asked, the last question was, what can we do to do better? So I think mm -hmm. that kind of opening of minds and hearts is very important. Um, and just to, you know, I'm about the structural issues and the institutional issues. If the structures and institutions can change and there are people that want to change, I think that's a very, very good sign. And, you know, it makes me happy that I can be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the questions that I've, I've been asking lately is, what is bringing you hope right now? I think that when I go um, to a college and I see kids hungry for information, last semester, I'm at the City University of New York. I taught, we have a medical school. Um, it's almost all people of color. I taught a class on health, racial health disparities and medical inequality. I had some, you know, these are pre-med students. They are going to be tomorrow's doctors. And um, they were so happy to be in the class. They were very funny because at first they weren't sure what it was about. I was like, well, it's for one, it'll be easier than all your other courses. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you're not going to have to memorize chemistry. Um, and engaging in those conversations, listening to them say, I want to stay in the community and um, make it better and practice in the community where I'm from. Many of them were from the Bronx, some from the South Bronx. And, you know, I was really, others from Harlem, and I was really excited to see that energy and to see that open-mindedness. And they started to tell their friends, hey, take this class next you know, semester. And I was really feeling hopeful about the, that future. And I have to bring up our mutual person that we both love, Ms. Faye Price, who was at Pillsbury House Theater. She is just a phenomenal leader in our community, certainly outside of our community. She was at Pillsbury House Theater. We met when she got the recognition from the McKnight Foundation. Y'all's family must be something, because I tell you. Well, her mom was my godmother. And um, we grew up together when we were younger, both in Chicago. We got back in touch, adults, and you know we spend Thanksgivings together. Family means a lot to both of us. And we know that family is a way to protect yourself and take care of ourselves and each other. And I think, you know, have I have a little tiny family and she has a little tiny family. So we really appreciate that we are connected and through love. Michael Neighbors on our team insisted that I tell you how much your New York Times article meant to him. And as soon as I said, he goes, um, you know, who are you talking to tomorrow? As soon as I said your name, he said, she wrote this amazing piece in the New York Times and I'm from the South side of Chicago. And please let her know how much it meant to me. And mm -hmm. I just wanted to share that because often, I mean, you know, we're out in these spaces and you don't often maybe know how it's hitting the individual, but he said it just gave him a deep sense of pride and he wanted me to tell you that. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I never get tired of hearing that. It just, you know, one of the ways that keeps me going. So thank you. And thank you for the conversation. I do encourage everyone 
to get the book Under the Skin. I have already recommended it to my link sisters and other women and folks that I know are interested in this issue that are thinking differently about how they care for themselves and others in community and that are working on um, systems change as it relates to all the things that we've talked about and more. So thank you so much for being with me today and on Conversations with Shonda. Thank you. It's nice to see you and to hear what you're about. And I love your podcast. And that's Linda Villarosa and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. 